Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I'm glad we finally got set up and uh, we're ready to go. It's nice to be here back to Lake Junaluska. I think I was here 18 years ago, maybe, 2004 or 5. And I was out in Hatteras at that point. I live in Southern California now, but I was out at Hatteras. And I'll never forget, my wife and I drove to get here. And I got here on a Sunday night. And I looked and I said, man, this grass is awful tall. Came a week early. Yeah, yeah. So it was only an eight-hour drive, you know. So I said, well, I think we have got to go back to Hatteras tonight. And so we got back as the sun came up. But anyway, it's uh, wonderful to be back in North Carolina. My roots are in North Carolina, by the way. I uh, was born in Florida, but as a teenager, grew up in Salisbury, but the family roots are really over in Kernersville. I see my cousin is here. He taught at Western Carolina University, retired up here, yeah, Michael. And so anyway, I have a lot of roots here, and uh, I got to go to Mount Pisgah for part of a year. I won't tell you all that story, but... Uh, Today, anyway, I'll tell you as the week goes on. I think we got to the achievement test and four boys ran away. We got on the 40 and we hitchhiked. We had a great plan. We had $2.40 between us. So we bought crackers. Fortunately, the corn was growing. And I said that evening, I said, I think we got to go out and eat corn. <laughs> so we went down and we got some fresh corn. We stole some years off the shucks and shucked it and ate it and caught a ride all the way to Texas. I'll tell you this part of the story because one of my comrades, his father was a doctor that many of you probably know, Dr. Steen, and uh, the plan was to go to Mexico. They were, they were in trouble. I was new at the school. They were in, they'd been in trouble before. And they said, uh, we're going to get kicked out, you know, so we better run away. Crazy plan get to Texas, and so Philip had called his dad and said, um, send us some money. We're, we, we need some money to come home. We want to come home. He was very wise, and he got with the principal, Stuart Crook, and they said, okay, you wait there by the Western Union. And of course, the police came and swept us up. <laughs> so now we got four boys in the Texarkana, Texas County Jail. And uh, I'll never forget, it was an interesting thing. We were walking in, and there was this beautiful table with a checkered tablecloth, and it had an hour with your Bible tracks. And I thought, this isn't bad. I sat down, and the guy said, hey, that's a this is the jailer's quarters. <laughs> we got to go on, boys. And they took us in, and there were four slabs for beds sticking out and one mattress that had not been treated well. So they all wanted to flip fingers for the one mattress, and I said, I'll just take the other lower bunk, and I'll get out of this one. Anyway, make a long story short, it was a kind of a a really uh, tough weekend with lots of people screaming and carrying on. And the next night, Philip Steen's brother, who was a pastor, and Stuart Crook came in. They looked in the window and they said, how are you boys doing in there? <laughs> oh, it's not bad, not bad. Said, we'll be back tomorrow night and pick you up on our way back to North Carolina. <laughs> Best thing they could have done, left us in there another day. And uh, so anyway, I have lots of roots here. And. Uh, in North Carolina, wonderful roots. But I was actually converted at Charlotte on July the 6th, 1972 at a Rolling Stones concert. But I'll tell you that story as the week goes on. <laughs> that was a most unusual story. And uh, so it's a joy to come back to camp meeting. It was, it was a joy to be here 18 years ago, 2004, 2005, and to be able to share and then to come back and uh, see relatives and friends. And so when I baptized in our first church plant here on the front row, Andrew surprised me this afternoon. We planted a church in Stamford, Connecticut in 1979 to 1989 with the highest per capita income in the United States. We spent 10 years there and had a wonderful church plant with wonderful people. We were baptized and built a church and then moved on to uh, Pittsburgh and then to Southern California. And then in 2004, I left the Adventist Media Center and we launched the Biblical World. Have some of you seen maybe Footsteps of Paul? Footsteps of Paul was an interesting uh, one. I was pastoring the Norwalk Church. So if you look carefully, if you see it on 3ABN, it'll say a Norwalk production. That's because we edited it in the back room of the Norwalk Church. <laughs> my youth pastor was our cameraman, Danny Chan, and uh, Simon Liversidge, one of my associate pastors. I had three associate pastors. So we uh, had a wonderful time filming 
in all these great places, telling the story of Paul and his travels. That was easy, and then a number of years later, decided to work on a project called uh, Tracing the Footsteps of Jesus. Have some of you seen that one, maybe? Yeah. Plays on Hope Channel, and some of you use it for seminars. That one was tough, because Jesus doesn't go very far. Paul travels over 13,000 miles, but Jesus doesn't go very far. So you can go to Ephesus, and you can shoot a whole episode in Ephesus, and you go to the next place, shoot an episode there. How many times can you shoot Lake Junaluska? I mean, the Sea of Galilee, you know? You can get an inspiration point, you can get down there, but, you know, so to try and get all those different locations to make it interesting was a real challenge. There's 28 episodes in that series. So if you haven't seen it, and I'll just uh, let you know what you don't see on television, there's gorgeous study guides that go with it. And it's really designed to use the seminars. And on the second row over here are Patty and Bud Swinson, and she, they've used this many times down at Daytona Beach where they live with their neighbors. And now that they're up here in North Carolina, they use it, but there's just gorgeous study guides they make it interactive with Bible studies. So it's wonderful to use in small groups. And it's really designed as an evangelistic tool. So it's not really in your face, you know, pushing you hard and punching you in the nose about the mark of the beast. It's more to unfold the life of Jesus. And just like in the Paul series, I know we got, sorry, Lisa, I gotta watch my time, but uh, just like in the Paul series, there are unexpected doctrinal issues that come up naturally and organically. Can I just tell you a quick story before we talk about the patriarchs? about the Paul series, I'll illustrate what I mean. People say, are you doing doctrines in Paul? I said, no, we're doing the life of Paul. But as we were actually going with my, two of my pastors and my one young adult church member, and we were in Philippi, and Paul got ran out of Philippi, they call it Philippi. They got ran out of Philippi, he went down to Thessaloniki, we say Thessalonica, right, or Thessalonica. I cover them all the bases, you know. Salonica, it's got four different names. But uh, anyway, he goes down there, and while he's there, the city turns against him. Remember, they chase him out. Now, he was beaten in, in Philippi, and now they chase him out, and he goes out to Berea. They could say Bury in that part of the world. He goes out to Berea, Berea, and while he's there, they're more noble, remember? They start studying, and then the guys trot out from Thessaloniki, and they come out, and so Paul has to leave with Timothy, and he leaves Luke and Silas there to take care of the church plant in Berea. Paul goes down to Athens, and while he's in Athens, he worries about the church plant that they made in Thessaloniki. So he sends Timmy back to check on it. And then Paul goes over to Corinth. Corinth is the largest city in Greece at that time, about 25 times the size of Athens in population. He goes down to Corinth by himself, and Timmy comes down and brings a report. He says, Paul, something terrible has happened. And the church in Thessaloniki is devastated. Paul takes out his pen and writes the first piece of the New Testament. First thing ever written. Can you imagine? We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and came back to life. Somebody had, they'd heard Paul say Jesus is coming again and somebody died and they're devastated. What does that mean? Will they be left out? Paul writes that matchless passage to a church just as real as the church you attend to comfort them when someone had died. Yeah, I saw that and I said, man, we gotta, we gotta go to a Greek cemetery and tell that story. That's a great story to tell, right? So all it's important to know about, he comes literally and personally and audibly and all the different things we like to do in our Bible studies. Originally, it was sent to comfort people who were hurting when they had lost a loved one. And that's what we want to do. So there's a whole episode in that Paul series that just focuses on that. I can tell you a bunch of stories about all that, but we're here to talk about the patriarchs. We, uh, let me see if I can get my video to click from way back there in the back. Look at that. Okay, so we do, we have seminars on uh, tracing the footsteps of Jesus, the footsteps of Paul, and now we've launched the most ambitious project that I've been working on. It's called The Grand Narrative, and so I'm going to share with you this week from that. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe in a meta-narrative? Now, Michael, my cousin, who's the professor at Western Carolina, would understand meta-narrative. But do you believe in a meta-narrative? So meta means higher than and transcending. Do you, do you believe in an overarching story that ties all of human history together? Amen. Yeah, we would say we believe that, right? Now, the philosophers would say, absolutely not. They would say that doesn't get... But we believe there's an overarching story. As a matter of fact, we call it something different. We don't call it the grand narrative. What do we call it? The Great Controversy, that's right. And so the Great Controversy is really what we're talking about.
So do you believe in that? Well, that's what we're working on. We're trying to develop that. So our first volume, there's actually seven volumes in this series. First volume has now been released. It's called The World of the Patriarchs. That's what I'm going to share with you this week. And by the way, this is Beersheba. Abraham lives a lot in Beersheba. Isaac lives in Beersheba. Beer is well, well of the seven or well of the oath. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree and dug a well there. So there at the little site of Tel Beersheba in southern Israel in the desert, you can see a tamarisk tree growing by a well. And so that city was not there in Abraham's day. That's more from the kind of David we call it Iron Age. But it's there. Seven volumes. So that picks up post-flood and goes to Joseph being sold in slavery. We go everywhere the story happens. So that means we go to Dothan when Joseph is being sold into slavery and so on. We filmed this one. Uh, we had this film before COVID. So I'm actually editing volume two, number seven or number 14 in the whole series. That's, by the way, called the Bent Pyramid. Can you see why it's called Bent Pyramid? Pyramid? It's the first real pyramid that was ever constructed. It goes up, and the guy had the angles wrong. Uh, he hated being the architect, huh? So it goes up, Senefru builds that, and then he doesn't get it right, so he goes over about a few hundred meters, and he builds another one called the Red Pyramid. And then his son builds a pyramid you think about at Giza called the Pyramid of Cheops, right? And those great pyramids over there. I have to tell you a funny story. We use this to, to tell stories. What, what do you think we're telling in there? Maybe Moses and the bulrushes? So my cameraman, I got, I think, the best cameraman, Brian Ballou, whom you know. Elizabeth knows on the front row here. So Brian Ballou had left, and so I set everything up. I've got my driver in Egypt. I mean, we're, we're way exposed. We're way out in the middle of nowhere. With that little bit of water and those little bulrushes, that was kind of a beautiful scene, so we could tell different stories. So we're out there, and I got my driver, my wife's helping me, and all of a sudden, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, just like you jumped, my wife nearly came out of her skin, because we're way exposed out there. I said, oh, don't worry, don't, don't worry, Helen. It's just probably a hunter. <laughs> I'm thinking, right. <laughs> Pretty soon, this guy comes walking out of that bulrushes. He's got one of those old shotguns, you know, the, the double barrel ones. <laughs> it breaks down, and he's got two ducks by the neck. <laughs> he walks over. And he invites us for dinner, and I said, I'm a vegetarian, but thank you anyway. <laughs> so anyway, this picks up with Joseph in Egypt, and it goes down through the Exodus, the route of the Exodus, things that you will love to argue with me about, I'm sure. And uh, then it goes on down, and we cover the judges, and we wrap up at the birth of Samuel. So the next volume picks up with the world of the kings, and then we'll take that down and do the world of the prophets, the world of the Jesus, the world of the apostles, and then the world of the early church. So it'll be 49 episodes altogether, and we're pretty excited about that series. But I want to talk to you this afternoon about the world of the patriarchs. There's seven volumes in this. That's actually, you can kind of see those seven volumes. And we're not going to go through it that way, but I'm going to tell you about how you can use it. We film here. This is a very interesting place. It's called Haran, right? And what happened in Haran? Abraham moved there, and his dad, Terah, died there, and then he made his way on to the Promised Land. They have these beehive houses, so we got to go and film over there. Here we're by that beautiful water in the Bent Pyramid, and over to the right you can actually see the Red Pyramid, the first real pyramid. And then this is an interesting place. It's close to Bethel. Bethel's really not as nice as that, and, uh, but we filmed about the story of Jacob there. This is an interesting place. This is on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea a place called Bab Edra, Baba's Gate of the Arm. We believe, most Adventist scholars believe this is biblical Sodom, okay? So we actually found, we're not talking about conjecture with what people's imagination, we're talking about actually finding ruins of cities, three-foot ash layer burned from the roof, what we'd expect from that. So it's called Bab Edra, and uh, this is an interesting one. On Friday, I'm going to tell you a story about this. It's at the Jabok River. The Jabok River. Remember what happened there? Jacob wrestled with the angel. And his name was changed here. And also, Laban catches him here. Right? So we're going to talk about that. Got to tell that story, and every time I think about it, still brings tears to my eyes. And now, this is kind of cool. This is outside the scope of what we're talking about, but I can't tell you that. Anyway. See that little pyramid back there? If I'm right, if I'm right, Joseph buried the Pharaoh in that pyramid. 
the Pharaoh, Sunnesret II. Now what's interesting about this is if, if you know a famine's coming, what do you do? You save grain. But if you're really smart, what do you do? Sorry? You put more land under cultivation so you don't run into famines in the future, right? How would you do that? Well, the Niles, we're going to see this, this afternoon, goes from south to north. It's the richest farmland in the world, the most fertile valley on earth. As it goes up, there's a depression. If you look on your map, you'll see Cairo, and then off to the west, you'll see a big oasis called the Fayim. When you look at the Fayim, it's not a natural lake. It's a depression. Someone built a canal to take the water from the Nile out and flood that area, and they put a third more of the land under cultivation. You would call that really smart, right? Yeah. That's that canal. Now, it was, during the Roman period, it was very dry, and they forgot all about this. But a British engineer figured this out back in 1920s, 30s. And as he figured it out, he proposed that there used to be dikes and canals, and they flooded that. Well, they didn't either. They were not very into it yet, so they didn't do it. But in the 1950s, they flooded it once again. And today, you know what that canal is called? Joseph's Canal. Yeah, is that cool or what? Anyway, but that's in our next uh, volume, The World of the Exodus. So anyway, this series, if you're interested in it, you can get it. It's down at the ABC. There's a companion study guide that's beautiful. There's some samples here. There's some Blu-ray DVD, a leader's manual, and it's also available. You can get it on your iPad, iPhone, TVs, or whatever you might have. There's beautiful study guides. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. The first episode is The World of Abraham, Life in the Early Bronze Age, and I'm going to share some stuff with that, about that with you this, morning, this afternoon. So that's Mount Ararat, by the way. So the Bible describes how the, the ark landed in the mountains of Ararat, and as the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So the Bible tells us where civilization begins. What's it called? Land of Shinar, right? So here on Mount Ararat, and when you go down, there's a valley down below, and so they settled there in this beautiful area. So here we can see Mount Ararat up at the top on the right side of the screen. We see the arrow coming down. We can kind of see two rivers coming down, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And the Bible says, Genesis 11, verse 2, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So that's a, that's a kind of a milepost, right? And that's something we can anchor in history, right? Follow me? Nimrod became a mighty warrior on the earth. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kelna in Shinar. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. So here we have our four cities it's talking about. I've got a mark for you. Now notice... If you look on your map in your Bible, it's not going to look like my map. Because Ur is actually, in Abraham's day, on the coast of the Persian Gulf. Today, it's 110 to 125 miles away, the, the coast. It's called the alluvial shift. The, 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 the soil has come down and the sea has retreated about 125 miles away. Right? So if you look on your map, you won't see it. But that, that's kind of what we think the coastline was in the time of Abraham with the cities. So here we have our four cities. <clears throat> now it's very interesting that history says civilization begins in Sumer, the same place between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Isn't that amazing? So the Bible gave us our anchor over here, the land of Shinar between the two rivers. History says it's the land of Sumer between the two rivers. It's one and the same. So the Bible and history dovetail together for the beginning of civilization. That's pretty neat. The first city, they tell us, the first town, they tell us, is Jericho, but the first city is called Uruk. And what did our Bible text say? It was the four cities, and one of them was Uruk, spelled a little different, but the same city. That's pretty cool. Wow. And this is where writing develops, by the way. And so here on the table, if you want to come up afterward, we'll try to maybe put the table down. You can look at it. There's actually a cuneiform tablet. It's not from Uruk, but it's from that Mesopotamia part of the world that you can kind of look at and see. So the first city is Uruk. Akkad is the first international empire. So they have now stretched all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down into Arabia, the first international empire. And they have a language called Akkadian that was the English of the day or the French of the 19th century, the international language for 1,500 years. But they've never found Akkad. Interesting. They never found Akkad. But we know it was there. Now, Ur is our pivotal city. It's there on the coast. And as I said, we believe that Ur was actually a coastal city. Now, we look at the picture there in the black and white, and it doesn't look very nice, does it? 
Now, if you look on my map again, you see that Ur's on the river and on the coast. All those cities are on the coast. And what happened is, it's called the alluvial shift, as the, all the, the silt came down from the rivers, the rivers moved 10 miles away from the cities and left them like hulks out there in the desert. That's why they look so odd today. But in Abraham's day, it wasn't that way. We believe that Ur was a very prosperous city. It's where they first developed cereal grains. Farming's first developed here. Very interesting. But here we see it today, and we say, whoa. By the way, the railroad tracks were built by the Germans so they could take all the goods back to Germany that they were finding as they were digging. So Ur was very fertile. This is the second most fertile valley on Earth, Mesopotamia, after Egypt. Doesn't rain there, very rare to rain. So they, they do irrigation. Now there's a difference between Mesopotamia and Egypt. Egypt, you don't have to really irrigate. The annual flood that they call the inundation comes and it leaves a quarter of an inch of topsoil every year. The richest farmland in the world. And that topsoil was good enough when, it would, when the inundation would retreat, you wouldn't even have to irrigate your crops. It would grow all the way through to completion. Now Mesopotamia, a little different because the rains came a little bit later from the melting snows of uh, the mountains of Turkey. And so they ended up getting a lot of salt in their crops as time went on to kind of poison their crops. So the Tigris and Euphrates watered it, cereal grains is there. Now here is our text, Genesis chapter 11, verses two and three. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Can you see what's in the picture? That's from Ur. <coughs> what are those blocks made out of? Mud brick. What's in between them? Tar, bitumen, right? Just like the Bible said. Now he has to write that, Moses has to write that because he's writing to people who don't live in that part of the world. Everybody in that part of the world knows because in the floodplain there are no rocks. They have to bring the rocks from the mountains, right? It's just all alluvial soil. So it tells us how they were building it. Now this is an animation that we think might have been like Ur and the kinds of boats they might have had. They tell us that from Ur, at the time of Abraham, they were trading as far away as Afghanistan, right, India. It was a fabulous city. And this is a city that Abram would have grown up in and would leave to go to the land of promise. You can see that they have their ziggurats, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, with their gods up on the top that reminds us of the story that our text was from, of the Tower of Babel, right? So here you can kind of see a very interesting ziggurat, and we'll see one that looks like that. So, we go on in Genesis chapter 10, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we, make make, so that we may make a name for ourselves. So they want to have a tower that goes up to the heavens. Was it to escape the floodwaters? Maybe. Or was it to try and be a gate to their God? Okay. That's why it's called Babel, Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. So here's where we have Babylon. And we can see all these other cities that have kind of built up along the area there by the time, a bit later. So remember I told you Bab Idraw meant gate of the arm. So Bab means gate. And what does the word El mean? God. So in their language is the gate of God. Because they're putting it up high. They're living on the floodplain, not here in the mountains of North Carolina. They're living out in Hatteras, right? There's nothing, nothing big out on the Outer Banks, right? Except that little sand dune in Kitty Hawk where they learn to fly. So they're going up as high as they can because this is the gate of God. You just imagine their priests and so on are going up to intercede from that point, right? Makes sense? But then notice what the Bible says. They hear the Lord confuse their languages. So the Bible says it's not the gate of God. Instead, it's babbling. It's babble like a baby would talk. It's confusion, right? It's confusion. So the descendants of Noah took their knowledge of God with them to the land of Shinar or Sumer. And here again, we have our Mount Ararat. That's little Ararat off over on the left. But the big Ararat, they come off of that. They go down. And, and they know all about God. Does that make sense? They've got a, you know, they, they're not too far from Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. They know all these stories. But when they go down into the valley, things start happening. Some of them try and preserve that. They try and tell their kids about it. Try and disciple their kids, right? They try and, and teach them about the true God. Some find that a little bit irritating. So they kind of go off on their own over here and they want to live a little differently because they don't want to feel condemned. 
let you in on a secret about my physical experience. After finding out about many of the prophecies in the Bible and so on in the Adventist school system, I said, there's not a God and there's not a devil, therefore I don't have to answer anybody. I can live the way I want to live, right? It's just easier to push all that out of my mind. Some of these people do the same thing. They push all this out of their minds and they go off and they live the way they want to live. Others try to forget about God. So here's our text from Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Isn't that an insight? And that's what happens on steroids after the flood. Civilization begins to divide. The God-fearers are going one place, the other people are going a different place. I had a teacher that used to drill this into me, that morality dictates theology. What should it be? Theology should dictate our morality, right? But they flip it because I want to find something that will accommodate what I believe or what I want to do. And so I can invent different things and I can believe a lie. That's what's happening after the flood, right? That's where we live today, right? Yeah, so we're, we're living in all of that today. So morality dictates theology. And so they're dividing and so we're, we're having these camps, you might say, they're beginning to divide there in the, after that. So God calls a man in Ur to separate from his family and culture and to preserve the true knowledge of him. Now again, he's way down here and God wants to take him out of that. Now each of these cities have different gods. Now at first it seems pretty good because you've got one God and he's the wind God, right? You've got another God, he's the sun God. In Ur they had a, a Nana that was the moon God. They've got all these different gods. It sounds pretty good, but you know what the problem is? It's a curse because you've got to satisfy all these gods to keep life in balance. So God calls Abram to leave all this polytheism and to follow him where he can establish the worship of one God that we call monotheism, right? Now Ur was a coastal city, as I said, with trade routes throughout the world. It was the greatest city in the world when Abram was born there. This is Sir Leonard Woolley found some of these things in the great cemetery of Ur from the, roughly the time of Abraham, Golden Helmet. He found this and he named it the Ram in the Thicket to tie this Ur, there's two Urs by the way, San Urfa in Turkey and, and Ur down here. He names this one the ram in the thicket to tie it to Abraham. And of course this is the one that most scholars believe. Muslims however believe that it's San Urfa in Turkey. You can see there's lapis lazuli there, there's copper for the horn, the ears, you can see the lapis lazuli on his back, the mother of pearl, very fabulous, they found two of those. So we read on in our Bibles, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and the, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there, Genesis 11:31. So they leave Ur, but for some reason they deviate off the road, and they go up to Haran, and they settle there. What's going on? So he's called to separate from his family because his family are polytheists. Life is way too easy there. And so he goes, oh, he goes, let's just see if I got my little thing that can show us from Ur. It started and I pushed the button, didn't I? There it goes. And so he's going to go up by Babylon following the Euphrates River. The road went along that by Mari where they found thousands of tablets. And he's going to turn north off the road. It's called the Interstate 95, I mean the Great Trunk Road. And he turns up and he goes up to Chattanooga or something, down by Aleppo. He's going to come down through Damascus, the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, and over to Shechem in the land of promise. So that's his journey. He's going to travel all this journey. God's separating him from this place where life is really easy and prosperous, and he ends up here in Haran. Now, why Haran? We don't know. But since his father dies there, did his dad get sick? Since it's named after his brother, did they have relatives there? By the way, they worship the same moon god that they worshiped in Ur, so they seem to be sister cities. Some connection leads them to be there, which is kind of interesting. So Abram's father was a polytheist. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. 
Joshua said, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods, plural. Other gods, right? Abram's father? Abram's father. What about Laban's daughter? She had household gods, like we have here. Actually, we believe these were title deeds to your property, which explains why the brothers were so anxious to recover them so that she couldn't come back and claim land when she went with her husband down to the land of promise, or Canaan. After his father's death, God said to Abram once again, leave everything you know, everything you're familiar with, and go to a land I'll show you. So he's called to separate from the familiar so they can preserve the knowledge of the one true God that Abram calls El at this point, El, okay? Here's our text, Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 11 verse 31. So God says, leave again. I'm going to show you this other land. I'm going to bless all the world through you. What does that mean? I recently got in touch with the other side of my roots, not Michael's side of my roots, but my other side of my roots, and, uh, and discovered that my grandmother had told me that my other grandmother was Jewish. Well, I did all these ancestry tests and came out as 12.5% Jewish, Hungarian Jewish, Felderbaum. And uh, so does it mean that, that through Abraham's seed, we're going to have all these wonderful doctors and, 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 and award-winning scientists and Nobel Prize-winning scientists are going to bless the world. Is that what it's talking about? No. That might be true, but it goes on in chapter 22, verse 18 of Genesis. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. Well, their offspring is blessed, but Paul helps us to understand what the offspring is. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So that blessing the whole world is the Messiah will come through the line of Abraham and through his descendants and will bless all of the earth, right? Amen to that, right? Wow. Okay. So God calls Abram to leave her and separate and preserve this knowledge. So again, he leaves everything he's familiar with. He heads down. God promises to make him the father of many nations. Cool, right? That's nice, all right? Genesis chapter 12. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. We don't think those are slaves, by the way, but people that joined Abram because they believed what he said, and he set out. So here we're in Haran, and we're going to leave that, and uh, we're going to go down to Aleppo. He would have stopped in Aleppo. We saw that city destroyed. I've been there, but we've seen it destroyed during the Syrian civil conflict. And then he went over to this other city called Ebla. We call it Tel Mardik. Tel Mardik is very interesting, huge city. Jericho, six to ten acres. No matter what your storybooks tell you, it's six to ten acres in size. Tiny, small, right? 140 acres, big, right, big. 30,000 people could live inside, we think maybe, maximum 1,000 people in Jericho. Palace was here, and they discovered 20,000 tablets in that palace. Fantastic. Some believe they even discovered bills of sale to Sodom and Gomorrah, the linguist Dr. Pedanato said that, okay, on the site. Well, he leaves Ebla, and he's going to go on down to Damascus. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. He would have stopped there. And in this market, guess what? It's the largest oasis in the world. doesn't really rain there. Here we can see the market. Sarah shopped in this market. And what did they buy while they were there? Do you remember? Shall I say, who did they buy? Eliezer, my servant from Damascus, right? Probably picked up Eliezer right there in Damascus. And then they're going to head on down, and as they come down, they come to the land of Canaan. Now, why do they call it the land of Canaan, anyway? Because the Canaanites live there. But why the land of Canaan? Canaan means red-purple. Red-purple. 
And they would die for a muric shell in the small sea snail. They would take the gland, they'd smash the gland and make purple dye. At one time, one ounce of purple dye cost 10 ounces of gold. That's why only royalty could afford to wear purple, right? So here we can kind of see how they're dying. You can see the different colors that they'd use from, from uh, plants and so on. But for the purple dye, they actually use this, the muric shell. Now this is an interesting piece. This is from my favorite museum in all the world. It's called Virginia. It's where Alexander the Great's father, Philip, is buried. This is actually the burial cloth from Philip's grave, father of Alexander the Great. That's purple cloth embroidered with gold thread, right? So very, very wealthy. So it's the land of Canaan. But why go to Canaan? What's so special about Canaan? Right? Now you can kind of see Canaan on both of the screens here. You can kind of see that little strip of land, Canaan, here on the side. Why Canaan? Mesopotamia is the one great civilization. Egypt is the other. And there's a service station between the two. It's called Canaan. So just imagine the caravans are going from Mesopotamia down to Egypt, from Egypt back to Mesopotamia, and they've got to get filled up. Now, they didn't use camels at this time for caravans. They used donkeys, okay? So they've got to come through and, and, and get serviced in this little area because see all the desert there? It's all desert, so they can't go. They've got to go in that little strip of land. And that's where Interstate 95, that big line, you see the Great Trunk Road? That's Interstate 95, connecting Ur with Memphis down in, in Egypt, right? And so as it's going back and forth, they have to service it. And God plants Abram there because what's going to happen? People are going to come through. Warriors are going to come through, right? They're going to hear stories about this guy who's a friend of God, right? Traders are going to come through, and they're going to hear stories about Abraham and Isaac, and they're going to take them out to the far parts of the earth, right? So God puts them there because it's the international crossroads of the ancient world. So they can take this story and share it everywhere with everyone. Abraham arrives during a collapse in Egypt. So after they build the pyramids, the big pyramids, the Giza, there's a total collapse. It's called the first intermediate period of Egypt. Total collapse of society. This is what we call, I don't want to get technical, but the, the end of the early Bronze Age. Guess what happens in Canaan in the early, at the end of the early Bronze Age? All the cities collapse. Why? There's no business. There's no commerce going on. Now they go out and take care of animals. They go out and farm. Or they move to Egypt. Or they move over to Mesopotamia. They move somewhere else. There's a total collapse. So while they're leaving and going from Canaan over to Mesopotamia, guess what? God's bringing Abraham the other way to the land of Canaan so that he can establish him there in this relatively peaceful time. And they can grow in his understanding about what God is like. So Canaan is very important. Well, here we can kind of see about 70 miles wide, 75 miles at the widest point, some places about 10 miles wide, surrounded by desert. So that little strip of land becomes so important. And this is why God plants them there. Now here we have our world, right? We've got our continents, Europe, Asia, Africa. But look at this. The Indian Atlantic Oceans, the Red Mediterranean Sea. Can you see there's only one land bridge between the three continents and the two great oceans? It's right in the land of Canaan. That's why Abraham is there, and by the way, that's why Jesus is there. As a matter of fact, when Jesus moves from Nazareth down to his hometown, according to Matthew, was what town? Anybody remember? Capernaum, or Capernaum. Capernaum, as they would say there. He moves there because that's on Interstate 95. It's on the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the Great Trunk Road. And again, so people will take the stories everywhere. God just planted that way. Isn't that cool? Well, Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Abraham has made this big journey. Do you like to go on journeys? You know, I like to go on journeys. And, and as you're, you know, if you're driving a long distance, you're thinking about what it's going to be like when you get there, you know. Now, remember, he leaves the second most fertile valley in the whole world. And he gets to the land of Canaan. He doesn't build any altars along the way. And he gets there, and he stops at Shechem. It's Shechem. Shechem means shoulder, by the way. It's on the ridge of the central mountains. That's Shechem. Now, please don't throw tomatoes or even stones. But does that look like a land of promise to you? I don't think it looked like a land of promise to Abram either. It looks like a land of rocks. So we have Mount Gerizim on the left and Mount Ebal on the right. Shechem's in between. It means shoulder. 
And there's a well there, by the way. Remember? Who dug it? Father Jacob. And Jesus met a woman there. Probably an authentic site. So as we're teaching in the series, I sit on rocks because that's what it looks like. I'm not, I'm not picking the worst areas, by the way. This is just the way it is. It's a land full of rocks. If I know Abram at all, he probably got there and said, this is the promised land? Huh? Well, something doesn't add up to this story. This is not all I, I didn't leave. I, I left a place of abundance, right? By the way, what did Abram do for a living? He's a shepherd. That's a great land for shepherding. Not a great land for farming. By faith, Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So here you can kind of see a nice little olive tree. It's kind of growing there. They grow their olives. But notice what Genesis chapter 12, the comment that's made, verse 6. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. What's the key word? The Lord appeared to him. Sometimes life is tough. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes life is difficult. I want to be honest and say sometimes it doesn't make a bit of sense to me. But if you know God is with you, you can endure just about anything, can't you? First time the Bible says the Lord appears to Abram is here in a land where I think he's gotten there and gotten disappointed with his journey. And the Lord appears to him. He says, Abram, it's going to be okay. I've led you here. I'm with you. It's okay. And by the way, if we remember God's with us, we can endure just about anything in our lives today, can't we? When we forget that, we kind of walk in the dark, and that's where we, we get off the trail and get hurt along the way. And so what does Abram do? He does something very, very dramatic. First time he does this, what does he do? He built an altar to worship. Doesn't build an altar in Haran. Doesn't build an altar in Aleppo or Ebla or Damascus. But he builds an altar here because he wants his descendants to come. And by the way, you think that's important? What do we leave for our descendants to tell them about our journey with the Lord? Kind of an important thing, by the way to leave some milestones. He left an altar there. Jacob left a well there, right? And they could remember that. He built an altar. Well, from there, it says in verse 8 of chapter 12 of Genesis, he went on toward the hills of east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So my little arrow is pointing to Bethel, and you can see as you go down the hill, you come to I. Now, you live in beautiful North Carolina, or, or at least we're, we're in beautiful North Carolina. I don't know where you live. And here on the East Coast, you know, the, the rains come and the mountains are tall. I love Mount Mitchell. Had my honeymoon there on Mount Mitchell a long time ago, 1977. And, uh, but you know what? The rain clouds just keep on going when they come from the coast and they go to Tennessee. Where I live in Southern California, rain clouds come off of the Mediterranean. We, you know, the song says it never rains in Southern California, but it rains, it really pours. When it really pours, those rain clouds come, and it rings all that out, and you go, to, you go over to Palm Springs on the other side of the mountains, and it's basically dry as a desert. All the way to Arizona, no, no rain comes. That's going on here, by the way. It's a coastal plain. It comes up on the mountains, rings all the water out. When you get to Shechem, and you get to Jerusalem, you leave Jerusalem, and just within a mile or two, you're in the desert because it doesn't rain. Very little rain. So when you go over to Ai, it's totally desolate as you go down toward the Jordan Valley. So Abraham goes there. Would you like to see what it looks like? Let's see if I can, hopefully i got a picture coming up here next. This is Bethel. Looks like a promised land to you. Look at all the rocks, by the way. See all the rocks around? Very, you know, all the, the, the little bit of rain that comes, it really pours when it rains in the wintertime. And it washes all the soil off the rocks down into the valleys. And they farm the valleys. And then they shepherd in the mountains. And that's what Abram is. He's a shepherd. He's, he's a Bedouin, if you please. He's running up and down the mountains with a sheep. Going North Carolina in the winter. It's in the summer. Florida, Florida in the winter, right? You get the deal. You know the drill. Okay, so he continues on. So he goes to Bethel. And then this is called the Patriarch's Path. Even today we call it the Patriarch's Path. And he goes down to Beersheba, right? In the south. Shechem gets about 23 inches of rain all in the wintertime. But it's high, 
It's kind of nice climate. It's called Nablus, by the way, today, by following that. And it goes down to Beersheba. Beersheba gets about eight inches of rain. All right? Now, he doesn't stop in Beersheba. He goes further south, where it gets about three or four inches of rain. It gets so bad. So the next verse says, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. He says, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is not like what I left. Where, where, where's the richest farmland in the world, by the way? In Egypt. Nicer than Mesopotamia. He's, he's, gotten, he's got a brochure from there, right? And he looked it up on the internet. He did something. He knows it's good. Please, don't, please forgive me. But I think that he leaves because of a lack of faith. He gets there, and I'm going to die. God, you brought me here to die? And so he goes to something familiar in Egypt. You think that God called him to go to Egypt? I don't think so. Don't think God called him to go to Egypt. Now, the Nile flows from south to north. Remember I said that the waters of the Euphrates and the, and the Tigris come out of the mountains of Turkey, eastern Turkey? They start about 25 miles apart, by the way. A couple springs. And they go thousands of miles to the Persian Gulf. This starts down in the mountains, the rainforest of Central Africa, and it goes from south to north, like the St. John's River in Florida, right? The wind blows from the north to the south, so you could actually sail upriver. You can float down the stream, kind of a perfect environment. Look at that. Most fertile land in the world. The delta, by the way, is 150 miles wide. Just incredible. No stone down there. Very, very beautiful. Notice how the Bible describes this. This is from Deuteronomy. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven, is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 10 to 12. So the land you're going to is not like Egypt or even Mesopotamia. It drinks water from the heavens. So what god would you think would be pretty popular in that land of Canaan? A rain god. And what's that rain god's name? Baal. And what was his wife's name? Asherah. And here's an Asherah goddess, by the way. So you can look at that through the week. We'll have many different artifacts up. So Asherah, he's the god of rain and thunder because you need, rain and, you need water to irrigate your crops or to grow your crops and so on. And so it begins to make sense what would happen there. As he was about to enter Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now we ponder this, don't we? Sarah is at least how old? 65. Abraham was 75, so she's at least 65. People struggle. Now, Sarah's nephew is named Laban, right? Laban means white. We have Lebanon because of the snow in the mountains. It's the very tall mountains. We have Lebanon cheese in that part of the world, the white cheese. Sarah's blonde, probably blue-eyed. Nefertiti, by the way, the famous queen of, of Akhenaten, was from Mesopotamia. She looks exotic. Abraham is a little nervous because his wife looks unusual, no matter what her age, right? I think she's still beautiful, of course, but she's also exotic in the land of dark-skinned people in Egypt. So he comes up with a plan. They're going to they're kill me and take you, my wife. Say you're my sister. But I want you to see what does the text say that Abraham hopes they will do with this ruse that he's planning. They will treat him well for, treat me well for your sake. Now I want you to ponder that. Look at that carefully. So that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared. We usually sense that he, he wanted to survive, but it's a little bit more than that. He wants to be what? Treated well. Okay, well let's read on. Verses 14 and 15, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace, just as he feared. She's exotic, much like Nefertiti, beautiful. And they take her into the palace. 
Verse 16. Pharaoh treated Abram what? Well, well for her sake. Remember? I want to be treated well for your sake. All right? And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. What would you call that? A dowry, exactly. He gets a dowry for his sister wife. God said I would be father of many nations, but hasn't worked out that way. By the way, we'll explore some of that story tomorrow. It's fascinating. There's a lot of intrigue behind the lines that we'll look at in the stories of what they do and how they follow the laws of Mesopotamia and what they're doing and so on tomorrow afternoon. He treated Abram well. Abram gets a dowry for his wife. All these sheep and cattle in different lands and uh, the dowry, right? So God has to intervene. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. He kept the dowry, but kicked him out of the country. Hmm. Now, this is most interesting. Abram can't hear God speak. Am I right? Abram couldn't hear God speaking down in Egypt. But Pharaoh could. Am I right? Pharaoh could. Pharaoh responds to the Spirit of God because God does not want Sarah to be violated by Pharaoh because she's to be the mother of the Messiah's bloodline. And as we see the stories of the two boys playing out, we understand exactly why, because Ishmael would have never participated in what Isaac participated in. Right? And we'll get to that as the story goes on this week. It's very interesting as you dig into it. So Abram can't hear God speak, but Pharaoh can. Now, under similar circumstances, the son does a very similar thing to Abram. She's my sister, as Abram does when he goes back before Abimelech, a place called Gerar. Isaac does the same thing there. Notice what God tells Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis. Do not go down to Egypt to live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. God specifically tells Isaac, don't leave the land of promise. You stay here, right? So does Abram go down because God's leading him or because he's trying to work out his problems? Now, I'm a problem solver. I like to solve my problems. Right? I think I can do a pretty good job most of the time. But sometimes it gets us into some challenges, right? So we need to leave those things, lay them before the Lord, pray, ask for direction. Ask for direction, yes. I was just teaching last week in Mount, Mount Eagle on uh, our Jesus series, and I have to just cut it out for a moment because there's a guy by the name of Zachariah who played, prayed for a sign, right? How do I know? Talking to Angel Gabriel at church one day. How do I? You're pulling my leg, man. I've been, I've been, my wife's been barren all these years. How, how do I know I'm going to have a son? He asked for a sign, right? You know what the sign was? Couldn't talk for nine months. I, I'm, all, I'm a little careful about signs. I, <laughs> he couldn't talk for nine months. But anyway, I can relate to Abraham, can't you? You know, we, we try and work out our own deal and so on. We try and make it work. And, and God gives us wisdom to try and do that. So we try and do that. How will we relate? Well, I want to be like Abraham, don't you? Well, let me tell you about how you can use some of this stuff, and then we'll pick up on the story tomorrow. The, in our world of the Bible, in the World of the Patriarch series, we have seven episodes. Would you like to see a video sample? You've heard me talk. Uh, we have wonderful camera crew stuff, so we're going to play a little clip here, the introductory clip, and we're going to be audio, okay?
That's your Kadesh Barnea, by the way. The Bible identifies the Tigris and Euphrates as two of the four rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, describes how the Ark of Noah came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and how as the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. This plain of Shinar is the same plain of Sumer that historians and researchers have identified as the cradle of civilization. Isn't it amazing to see how the Bible and history dovetail together? Hi, my name is Tony Moore and welcome to the world of the Bible as we explore the places where the biblical story actually happened. In this fascinating series, I will take you on location to explore the world of the patriarchs, the prophets, and the kings. We'll also explore the world of Jesus, the apostles, the apocalypse, and even the church. In this series, we will trace the grand narrative that ties together the seemingly separated and isolated events that have happened throughout time, revealing God's hand and involvement moving through the course of His story. This grand narrative flows through more than 4,500 years of time, providing a common thread tying together the past with the present. This comprehensive theme can also be called the Great Controversy, since it chronicles the battles between good and evil that have been unfolding since the beginning of time. This grand sweep of the ages, filmed on location, will bring many of these stories to life, revealing the critical issues involved in this epic conflict. Well, that's just a little clip from the uh, first episode, and you can see everything's on location. And there's wonderful music. Like the music? Yeah. Music is pretty good. We have it written by uh, a guy who does Hollywood stuff. Turns, he became an Adventist a few years ago, and he writes fabulous music. And uh, so there's fresh orchestrations written for the whole thing. And then uh, as we go on location, we have lots of challenges. What you didn't see there, there was a little swinging bridge right behind me across that, and there was a lost goat. All that goat did was bath continually. <laughs> Ultimately, I gotta say, you know, we got this goat and put him in the picture because you could hear him bad and we're throwing rocks at him, go, go. Finally, a shepherd came and he probably had 200 goats. And that little goat got reunited with his mommy and the others and went across the bridge and we had no more goat incursions that afternoon. So, uh, but anyway, I, I showed that to you because this is a wonderful series to use as a small group with your friends and your neighbors. It's a wonderful thing to use at your church to invite people. Sometimes we do the same thing over and over. And sometimes probably our neighbors wonder, do they know anything besides what they offer us multiple times a year, right? So I just wanted to share that with you because you can do it on, Blu-ray, on DVD. It's only in high definition on Blu-ray. Or you can do it electronically. We were able to finally figure out the technology to allow you to do both. Now, there are study guides. And this is what you don't see when you see our programs on television. There are beautiful study guides. And I know you can't really see all this, but I'm going to bring up some pictures in a moment. There are fabulous maps like that, and uh, annotated maps of what happens, beautiful things. But this is designed to go with the students. So when you're doing a, if you watch the episode, you'll play that, and then I want to show you how this interacts. And uh, I was hoping we could do something online. So this is, as you get into the series, some of the pictures you saw in the series, look at that. I see the picture there of the first tablet in Uruk. I see the little stones there with the tar, because we talk about all the things you've been talking about. We have the, the rivers, look at that, and we see the coastline of Ur on the left, and look over on the right, you can see the coastline's gone 125 miles. Actually, in the video, you'll see the whole coastline growing, because we want people to understand and have an anchor for their beliefs, an anchor for their faith, if you please. Now, you can see there's some wording in that, and there's some blanks that they can fill in. I want you just to tell you how this kind of works. There's also application questions because as much as it's, if you haven't figured out, I'm very left brain, so I love facts and figures and details. But ultimately, if it doesn't apply to my heart, I just got smarter, I didn't get any wiser, right? So we want to apply it to our hearts. 
And so there's actually application questions to apply it to your heart. Now, you know, another secret. I don't like application questions that other people write. Sometimes I read the Sabbath school lesson and I think, what on earth are they thinking with that question? I don't, I don't see any relationship. All of our materials, we have a leader's manual. The leader's manual not only gives you the key to all those questions, it gives you how I would answer the application questions. So at least you have a clue what I was thinking about when I wrote that question, because sometimes it's hard to, am I right? I, I mean, I, I sometimes have sweaty palms. I don't want to have to answer, oh boy. I gotta deal with this question. I don't know what, I don't know what, what I'm gonna say. At least you know where I was coming from. You may disagree with me, and you may take a different tack, that's fine. But we want you to at least have that. And then notice on the right, exploring the word on your own. So it's designed that you watch the video as a group, you go through the study guide, and then you fill it in together, and then you do the application questions, and then you tell them to take their homework home and do the Bible study on their own. Now, I was a Bible worker for many, many years and a pastor for many, many years and did lots of evangelism and built churches that way. So I'm used to a certain type of Bible study, right? I'm used to Daniel 2 and the second coming of Jesus and the signs and in the Sabbath. These are not Bible studies in that way. They're Bible studies that kind of illuminate the things we talked about in the series, but go a little bit deeper. But if there happens to be something doctrinal, like the one we did, and I told you about the Paul story, about the text, you know, about someone dying in, in, Th in Thessaloniki, right? Then there's a whole Bible study on the second coming, because it's organic to the story, right? It's organic to the story. So there's a Bible study, and in the manual you have how I would answer the Bible study. You know, you don't have to go that way, but you have that. Something we did extra this time in this series, and by the way, that, this holds true for our Footsteps of Paul series, for our Tracing the Footsteps of Jesus series. This series, I actually wrote an extra page that takes you beyond what was presented in the DVD. And so this is taking you to exploring the world of Abraham. And so you heard me mention the appeal of monotheism and the curse of polytheism. There's a whole paragraph, two paragraphs on that and, and why that is true and how that works, right? And also on Abraham's journey. Now, there's also a couple of paragraphs there that uh, we try and deal with, when did Abraham live? So, since we have a few minutes here still, when did Abraham live? Any idea? A long time ago. <laughs> when these gods were made here, right? He lived back then. Okay. So, there's a question, and that is, there's, we, we have an anchor in, in, in the Bible. Abraham is told that your descendants will be in the land of Egypt for 430 years. However, your Bible might say the land of Egypt and Canaan for 430 years. So the question becomes, is that from Abraham going to Egypt to Moses, 430 years? Or is that from Jacob going down to Egypt to Moses, 430 years? You get my question? Now, as an insecure young pastor, I always took the short version because I thought it could collapse time a little bit easier. And so it's kind of convenient if you do that because you go 215 years from Abraham to Jacob and 215 years from Jacob to Moses. Works out nice, right? And so I taught that way most of my ministry. And as I started working on this project, I ran into the story I told you earlier about Joseph's Canal. That's if you push him back to the time of Sunnesser the, the second. Then all of a sudden you have him in that time period. Then all of a sudden you have a lot of other things that begin to make sense and fit into place in a different way. And so most conservative scholars today are moving to the 430 years from Jacob to Moses. However, the Septuagint says 430 years in the land of Egypt and Canaan, spelled with a C-H-A-N-N-A-N, right? But the Hebrew doesn't say that. It just says 430 years in Egypt that they would be there. So anyway, uh, I try and give you some things if you're wanting to dig a little bit deeper that you can dig. And then you might notice down at the bottom there's actually further study that looks at a text, Galatians chapter 3. And uh, how does that harmonize with that? So we try and make this uh, really nice. The leader's manual, again, will give you options on how to use that. So here's a, just wanted to dig in a little bit deeper. Our first question in their study guide, if, let's just say you're doing this as a small group, you just watch the video, they've got their little book. Some people like to fill it out while it's going on, but most people will just listen. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers are born less than 20 miles from each other in the Taurus Mountains of Eastern what? Well, notice when you come into this, when you come to the end of the episode, 
the default is to go into the study guide and look what the first question is. Exactly what's written in the study guide. To make it easy. Now they might say, well, Mountains of Eastern, and they're going to say Turkey. And when they say Turkey, you push the button and Turkey pops in. So they're not saying, well, how do you spell that? Nobody's being embarrassed. You know, they don't know how to spell, right? Front of the screen, they can fill in their Turkey. You can just keep on talking and sharing and so on. In your leader's manual also, I share other little things with you that you might want to be able to share and so on. It's kind of annotated based on the study guide. And so here's one that we, we talked a little bit about. This is actually from the study guide. Ancient Mesopotamians believed their towers were a connection between heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 10 describes how people living in Babylon constructed one. Babel in Akkadian means gate of God. And the play on words, when God mixed their language, it was Bilal in Hebrew or confusion, right? So we're trying to make it interesting, right? And yet take them into Bible study where they can get deeper into Bible study and can grow spiritually. And when spiritual things can be talked about doctrinally, we'll talk about them. But the purpose is not to do 28 fundamentals. There's a lot of other great programs that do that. But it's to take people into Bible study. So how do you do it? Well, you can do it on Blu-ray or you can do it digitally. The digital membership you can do. And so you go to our website. This is what it looks like down at the ABC. You can buy it down at the ABC. And, uh, or you can go online and do the streaming. And the streaming works good as long as you have access to high definition. Normally it's 109 down at the AB, 109 for the set. Normally it's 119, it's 99 down at the ABC. This takes you into the digital. If you're interested in that, you can look at that on the website. I just wanted to point out a couple of little things. You can choose an image to play because there's seven episodes. And then you have options, play episode, welcome, study guide, exploring the word. And I do this, I just was, did an archaeology series in uh, Mount Eagle last two weeks ago, and then we did the, they started the series on the footsteps of Jesus, and it works the same way. But it's not very nice to say play episode welcome and all that. So there's actually a beautiful little welcome menu. I know nobody reads any of my manuals or instruction sheets, so. But anyway, I put that in there so it could just be nice. If you've got your friends and your neighbors coming over, you want it to look professional. Welcome to an unforgettable journey. And then you just push the button, and boom, it starts playing. And then it comes when the default over here, doing the study guide or exploring the word or further study or go back to the main menu. So this is called the bridge menu after the episode plays. And there again, you can kind of just see how it matches with the study guide and so on. And you can actually order extra study guides and uh, there's a material down there. So this is kind of our map where we were today and uh, maybe we have some time for questions if you'd like to ask some questions. When does Abraham go to Egypt? Abraham was born around 2100 BC, at the, at the end of the early Bronze Age at that point. And then we have 430, you know, and then we have Jacob coming down in the 1800s, to taking us down to around 1450 for the Exodus. And Joseph. Let me have a prayer since I know some of you have to go. Let me have a little prayer with you before we. Father in heaven, thank you so much this afternoon for this opportunity we've had to explore this fascinating world of Abraham. We thank you for Abraham, for his faith, how it grew, how he learned to hear your voice and walk with you. And Lord, we see he had a few long eyebrows like I have, but he learned to have faith and trust. And we want to learn the same things. So help us as we learn to walk with you today in the 21st century to know your voice and to follow it. And when we get off the path, to go back to where we hear your voice and keep walking once again. Bless each of us in our own journeys, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I'm happy to, to 